We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the DFS pregame show here on Roto Grinders. I'm Jordan Cooper, aka Blender Ed, Blender HD. You want to follow me there on Twitter? And it's Tuesday. We're getting close to the trade deadline in NBA. Already some action this morning, right? We're going to get some value on the Blazers, value on the Pelicans. If you didn't already see uh, CJ McCollum to the Pelicans, a whole bunch of players, right? It's CJ McCollum, uh, uh, Larry Nance, Tony Snell to the Pelicans. And the Pelicans are getting Josh Hart, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Thomas Sadoransky, and some draft picks. So uh, that there may be some more trades uh, this afternoon through uh, through Thursday. So uh, that'll spice up NBA DFS. That's what we'll be going over today, as we normally do in the middle of February, especially since I don't know if we're going to get baseball in April. I really don't know. We'll see. But uh, I see you guys in the YouTube chat. Suki Singh, Daniel Hutchings, Slick, Anthony Stewart. Hit that like button. Hit the, hit the thummy thumbs. Give me those thummy thumbs. Hit the subscribe button if you're new here. Hit the notification bell to know when we go live. Um, assuming uh, projections will start updating throughout the day for uh, for the for all the news that's coming. And we got a 10-game slate today. Okay, so the, the, who knows? I mean, it's going to be nuts. Uh, I'm assuming if we go to the, uh, the, the Pelicans, right, once we take Josh Hart out, once we take Alexander Walker out, 
Uh, I'm assuming that Devontae Graham goes up a little. Ingram goes up a little. I mean, a whole bunch of people go up a little. I guess Jose Alvarado gets more minutes uh, at, at, at the guard positions. Uh, they'll move some stuff around. And then we got the, the Blazers. The Blazers, right? So uh, we take out McCollum's 35 minutes. Where do they go? Probably they probably go to what? Dennis Smith? Dennis Smith, Ben Backlamore, stuff like that. Anthony Simons is already playing 35, but he'll have better usage. So that'll bump him up a bit, right? C.J. Ellaby, maybe that he gets bumped up a little bit. Okay, so stuff is going on. They'll be updating. They'll be updating behind the scenes. Get a Roto-Grinders Premium, right? Click on that link in the description. Get $10 off your first month. And you get access to Lineup HQ, all the projections, all the content that we have. Ownership. Ownership will be flipping all over the place depending on uh, if there's any more trades today. But uh, but yesterday, yesterday was uh, with five games slate. And it wasn't one of these slates where it's like, oh, there's, there's like 18 people, the value plays and everything like that. And I typically like those types of slates because there's no like clear, like the, there's no clear value. There's no, uh, if, if, you, if you were to build lineups, like the difference between like the, Top projected lineup and the thousandth projected lineup is not a separation of that many points. So uh, I like exploiting ownership a lot more on these types of slates. And uh, and I screwed up. I, I, I think I played poorly yesterday. And it has nothing to do with Gordon Hayward's injury. I was actually way under the field on Gordon Hayward. It's just that I, I don't think I was playing contrarian, contrarian enough. Because on these types of slates where, where you could drop a decent amount of ownership, for maybe two or three projected fantasy points. Like I don't mind playing lineups that are like 15 points below optimal uh, in, in, in these contests when, you know, the differences between a lot of players is a, is a three point shot is like two rebounds or something. So I thought I played lineups that were a little, little too chalky. I mean, not like, not like cash lineups or anything, but, uh, but once I saw ownership come in, I'm like, like yeah, yeah, I, I, I could, I could have dropped two or three points in projection and, and, and dumped a whole lot more ownership than I thought I could, and uh, it's not like it came back to bite me. I mean, just I, my liners were filled with kind of players that didn't get there, right? I still had some Hayward, but I had a bunch of Kuzma, and that you know that that Washington game that was a blowout, right? That Miami, Miami, Washington. So like Gabe Vincent got there in garbage time. Uh, I mean, he was only like two percent owned. But you know, like my my lineups had a lot of Van Vliet, a lot of Siakam, but they were all they were well owned. Van Vliet was forty one percent owned. Siakam was forty percent owned. I thought Booker would be higher owned than Van Vliet. I played a bunch of Ubre. Like I take a look at the top and top of this of the ownership, and it's like, yeah, these this is what I had a lot of, right? Burks. Uh, I was I mean I was under on Burks, but still had plenty of them. Uh, Clay Thompson, Kelly Ubre, Darius Baisley, some Gary Trent, Kuzma, like like. This, this looked like a lot of my lineups. And uh, on a slate where uh, the difference between players like this and the players underneath them, and you could drop half their ownership, probably should have done that more, more so in my lineups. So, so sometimes I don't play well. I mean, I've been used to, to pay every slate. There's, there's, you know, two or three guys that project way higher than everyone else. And, and uh, your, your, your ownership sum or product uh, ends up being higher as a result because, you know, there's such high probability plays that you're at least mixing them in to your lineups. 
So I was thinking, I think I was still in that type of mode that I didn't adjust for ownership like low enough. Would I have ever, would I have gotten to, to uh, uh, Mitch Robinson? Probably not. I mean, that's it. I don't know if it would have made a difference, right? So from a results standpoint, like I don't think it would have changed anything really, really much. Uh, but from a process standpoint, uh, it could, it could have. I mean, and that's really what you're reviewing. You're not reviewing the results. You're reviewing your process. So like the fact that like I had like 50% red Fred Van Vliet because I had Booker where Van Vliet was and Van Vliet where Booker was like that, that matters. Right. When I have Booker at 30, I, like I had Booker at 38 and Van Vliet at 30. And it turns out Van Vliet comes in at 41 and Booker comes in at 28. So really they would have been, been flopped. So I had, I, I had Booker as over owned and Van Vliet as under owned when it turned out to be the opposite. Right. So looking through some of this ownership, like I knew Ubre and Hay- Hayward were going to be high owned. I knew Hayward, I had it lower than 45 and still over owned. Kind of got a little lucky there. You know, I had him in like, I think eight out of 60 lineups. And he got injured in the first, what, first quarter or something, four, 4.75 points. Right. They always know when they're chalk, right? It always feels like that, right? Chalkies player on the slate, injury probably, foul trouble, right? Game blows out. They, they always know, right? They know. Going through some of this, like Rogier had a horrible first half. He came back to salvage, right? That if you played either center on the Thunder, it didn't matter. Favors or Diakite, uh, they both didn't get there, right? 10 points, 14 points, something like that. The Washington game blow, blew out. So, like, I had a bunch of Dinwiddie. I had a bunch of Harold, right? All the Wizards went, mm, unless you play like Aaron Holiday, right? You play garbage time player. Just looking through some of these, right? Jake, I still have some Jay Crowder, right? I didn't, I didn't play any Aduku as a bouquet. He got there, right? And then go down to the bottom. But yeah, I have a lot of players that are mixed in this like five to seven percent range, but not as much as I should have. Like, I played a lot of Chris Paul. I, Chris Paul is one of the most under-owned players, especially, well, especially with Booker when I had Booker at 38% owned and Van Vliet at 30. So I thought he was under-owned. I mean, he would, he would, based on the projections, he was under-owned. So at 9%, I have no problem with that. But my total lineup ownership was a little too high. So it was a little too chalky. It doesn't mean you had to have gotten there because, I mean, we look at the leaderboard and we look at the ownership sum of, like, the winning lineup was 167, which is around the range of some of my lineups. But, I mean, like, I wasn't playing 2% Vincent. I wasn't playing Mitchell Robinson at 6%. So my lineups, my lineups in actual ownership may have came in like this, but I was playing a lot more chalkier combinations of players. So that's how I re- that, that's how I review I think I think the value brain has has caught caught up to me for that slate, and these are the slates that I like to play the most, where nothing really stands out. So people tend to gravitate towards very marginal differences in value, right? People gravitate to Hayward, right? It's not like Van Vliet and Siakam are like cheap; they're eighty five hundred and ninety two hundred, right? Burks is forty eight hundred, right? Kemba's out. It's still like he didn't project like, oh, my God, you got to jam him in type of thing. But he's going to be 30 percent owned. There are other guys down here in the, you know, the 10, 5 to 15 range that are only, you know, two points lower projected. 
So it makes more sense to play those types of guys than play a guy like Burks. In the context of of an overall line. Looking at the YouTube chat, we got uh, more good mornings. Good mornings. Trade time. Uh, Jamie says, I was experimenting with a 100% automated build process yesterday, and it put Gabe Vincent in every line. It must, it no, it knew. Your process knew. Well, any, any, any process that, if you're playing 150, assuming, uh, that gets 100% of a guy. Like, without that guy being like Drummond when Embiid is out and he's 3,700. Like, like the, the nutso, salary adjusted plus minus 15 type of players, like then obviously your process is, is broken. I mean, most probably. I mean, I, I it's not like what 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 may, could you have played Gabe Vincent yesterday? Yes. It's not like he projected for garbage, complete nothing. There's four thousand. I don't see what what projection would you have to give him in order to appear in 100% of 150 lines. Unless you project him for a couple more points and put his ownership at like 0.1, then it's like, oh, it's so much relative value. Just throw him in everything. I don't know about that. I mean, I think Jay, I think Jamie is, uh, is, is being a little sarcastic. I think he knows the process, that, that obviously the process isn't good. That's why he said he scrapped the whole thing. Dave Spag, uh, is it true that experienced players can get into FanDuel tournaments as low as $5? Yeah, five, $5 is the limit. Anything below 5 depending on the size of the prize pool, experienced players can't play. Well, the key word is depending on the size of the prize pool. Experienced players, could, you know, the, the restricted players. Could, could probably play like what the four dollar and forty four cent one. It's a twenty k to first. It's a big price, very similar to DraftKings. Like I could still, I could still play the four dollar twenty things because the price pool is a hundred thousand dollars or whatever. If the price pool is under twenty five thousand, then I can't get it. It's like the mini maxes, the one dollar and one. I can't play those. I can't play anything $3 or under regardless. That's why they make the 20 max $4, right? So it's right on that line. But no, if you're, play, if you're playing the, the $1 contest on, on FanDuel, like no. Restricted players can't play. The, what, what is a restricted player though? Like I can play those contests only because over my six and a half years of playing, I've not played, I've played 98% of my volume on drafting. So to FanDuel, I'm not, I, I, I've, not, I've not, you know, made hundreds of thousands of dollars on FanDuel. So I'm not considered a restricted player there. On DraftKings, I am. So it depends on what you mean by experienced players. You may see play, you may see names that you may recognize from DraftKings. And you go, oh, they're still allowed to play the $1 contest. Like, yeah, well, maybe, maybe they've made most of their money on DraftKings and not on FanDuel. Best thing to do for FanDuel is ask them. I play primarily on DraftKings, so I know, I know, I know their policies. Like you know, like 
I know them very well. FanDuel, not so much. FanDuel, I go and I play the one and two dollar contest because I still I'm, I'm able to still play them. Eventually, they're going to cut me off on those. I don't know when. I don't know what the requirements are to cut me off from those, but I'm going to take advantage of it when I do play on FanDuel. And that's what you should be doing. Play against the weakest fields you can. People want to play the, the, the large field, main large field, 100K to first, whatever. It's like, no. Play the lowest stakes contest you can. And you can play the mini matches, play the N ones, the $1 contests. If you're playing cash games, play nothing over $5, especially if you're only playing, if you're playing $100 in volume. It's like there's no reason to play contests where where experience, where the, the, the high-volume professional-level players, long-term professional-level players are playing. Doesn't mean there aren't good players in the low stakes. There are plenty of good players in the low stakes. But if you don't want to play against, uh, you know, Papa Gates and Osimo and Brick 75 and, you know, anyone at the top of the giant squid, petty theft, you know, at the top of the leaderboard, Remember, they're putting in 150 lineups. So, like, that's 150 lineups. Not 150 good plus EV lineups that are not in those contests. Play the weakest fields possible. If you can't beat those, you're not going to beat the you're not going to beat the better ones. No, it's always that's what. But it's like a, you know, moving up to respect respect your raises type of thing in poker. I'm going to move, I'm going to move, I'm going to play smaller fields, single entry, high stakes, higher stakes, right? It's like, no, if you can't beat the weakest players, then how do you expect to beat the strongest players? Do we even have that? Hopefully we'll be getting, yeah, oh, we have the N1 in here, okay. We do have the N1 in here. We'll be adding more contests in the drop down now that we've moved over to the contest dashboard powered by Fantasy Labs. They'll have more options over time. I mean, I'm not part of this, so it's like they tell them. They tell me upgrades are coming. That's that's all they tell. But if we take a look here, look at the N1, for instance. See, we went to the N1. Look at the difference in ownership. If you can, if you consider the higher stakes, the main contest with with uh, 150 max professional players in it, to be sharper. Right, Hayward forty-five, Van Vliet forty-one, Siakam forty, Burks thirty, Ubre are almost thirty, and then we go to the N one. Hayward's forty-one, Van Vliet's thirty-eight, Siakam thirty-six, Ubre is actually a little more. Right, Burks is twenty-three. Right, so twenty-three on Burks, and he was thirty in the fifteen dollars. So you could see you could see how the ownership becomes less efficient in the lower stakes. People are playing worse lineups on average. It doesn't matter that Hayward didn't do well. That, we're not worried about results. But based on projection, Hayward was was a little bit more owned in the in the higher stakes larger field contest than the lower stakes large field contest. It's look, it's similar type of entries, right? Actually, the and one is probably harder to win. 47,000 entries. The fadeaway is 31,000 entries. But there are a lot 
crappier lineups in the N1. So your ROI in, in the $1 20 max should be higher if you're, if you're playing well, should be higher than the $15 fadeaway on average. The expected value of your lineup should be going up. The, the difference, the delta between the expected value of your lineups versus the field average should be higher. They're still hard to win. Yes, they're still large field GPPs. But if you can't beat the $1 and one, then you're not going to beat the $15 fadeaway. People go, oh, I want to play the $1.20 max. The first, pl- first place is $2,500. Right? It's very flat. That's good for you. Gain experience. Build your bankroll. Do you have to, do you, have to 20, you don't even have to 20 max it if you don't want to. But still, this is such a, such a, con- such a, a good uh, contest to experiment. For 20 bucks, you get 20 entries. And play, and play good lineups. Don't play scared. It's fl- it's a flat enough payout structure, especially at the top. That you you have a good one a top one percent rate, and you should be profitable. And you take that profit, and you build your bankroll over time. And then instead of playing twenty entries in the one dollar contest, now you're playing twenty entries in the four dollar contest, the four point play. Then you do that. Maybe maybe you make a bink in that contest, and that bink is like ten thousand or something, or seventy five hundred or whatever. Right. And you get up to you get up to 10,000. Your bankroll is now 10,000, 15,000, 20,000. And then you play 20 entries into the fadeaway. Don't make even though oh, you can play 150. No, just build good lineups. So playing 20 entries, you go from 20 entries in the one dollar contest. That's twenty dollars. 20 entries in the four dollar contest. That's eighty dollars as your bankroll moves up. Then you go over the fadeaway. 20 entries is three hundred dollars. So if you have like a $20,000 bankroll, 20 entries is 1.5% of that bankroll. Okay, that's, that's definitely, that's conservative. That's, that's reasonable. And then you play that. And maybe, maybe, maybe in, in this contest, you grab, you know, in a, one of these seasons, you grab a, a third place for 20 grand. And after your losses, whatever, it comes out, you know, you, you made eight grand on the season or something. Well, now your bankroll's up to like 28 grand. Then the next season, maybe instead of playing 20 lineups into the fadeaway, you're playing 30 lineups. $450 a slate. And if you're building good lineups, variance goes your way a little bit. Instead of, you know, you have a, instead of a, a fourth place finish, you get a first place finish. And that's $100,000. And next thing you know, now you have a hundred and thirty thousand dollar bankroll, right? And then, then now, now you can play eighty lineups into the fadeaway, right? Now you play twelve hundred a slate, and they, and on you go. And they're, they're, that's that's a progression. But I think one of the main reasons that people don't do that is 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 impatience. Not understanding how long this game is, and what how much variance there is long, you know, in the short term. It's like, oh well, I'm I'm not. Uh, I played an entire season and didn't get first place in the GPP. Well, well, boo boo. I mean, yeah, that's 
What's what's not normal about that? You could have easily played the whole season and gotten three first place finishes. Depending on the bounce of a couple of balls. The key is to survive long enough to, to survive long enough and play well enough to get lineups into the position of potentially winning a lot of money. That's why looking at that top 1% rate, top 0.5% rate, top 0.1% rate is a nice blunt, blunt way, not a perfect way to judge if you're, if you're building lineups that, that are competing for high equity positions in contests. But you got to start somewhere. You got to start at the bottom. You can't beat the weakest fields. You're not going to beat the stronger fields. So if you're starting up with a quote, you know, $1,000 bankroll, play 20 entries into the N1. The $1 contest, that's it. And you may have to play an entire season. Maybe you play an entire season, your $1,000 turns into 800 bucks. I mean, maybe, maybe that happens. Maybe your $1,000, if you start to play well, Turns into 2,400 at the end of the season. And maybe you bink, maybe you bink something. And you get up to 5,000 at the end of the season. Then maybe you start playing the $4.20 max from there. So by the time you get to the fadeaway, maybe you've played three, three and a half seasons of whatever sport. Obviously, if you're playing multiple sports, maybe it's a little bit quicker if you're playing well. Right? Because then you're getting into baseball. Then you're getting into football. You're getting you're playing MMA or golf or soccer or whatever. You're increasing your sample size. But you start at the bottom. And if you don't even have a thousand dollar bank, well, you start you're starting the quarter arcade, right? Go down there. Or even if you are playing the one dollar and one, also play a play 150 entries into the mini max or whatever. Or 20 entries, 10 entries. It, it doesn't matter. Start with the weakest fields. You can't beat the weakest fields. You ain't going to beat the stronger fields. And then move, patiently move up with your bankroll. And then if you hit downswings, don't be afraid to move back down. You have that patience. What I, what I always say to a lot of people, like, you know, when I, when I, when I talk to them, when we, especially in the, the Zoom chats we have, in the Blender's Game Theory channel as part of our premium Discord, right? I do Zoom, I do group coaching calls, private coaching calls, essentially, in a group setting on Zoom. That's part of your Roto-Grinders premium subscription. So click on the link in the description, get $10 off your first month. But I talk to a lot of smart people there. We have a lot of smart subscribers that are premium members. When they describe, you know, their process and everything, I like, dude, like you got it. Like maybe they do things slightly differently than me, but conceptually they're doing the same things. I'm like, you got like, like, I don't know what else to tell you. Like the only difference between, and it, it's people that may only have played, been playing serious DFS seriously for a year or two. And they have a bankroll of like $5,000 or something. And it's like, you know, dude, the only difference between me and you is like five years. That's it. That's, that's the only difference. You're me from five years ago. That's it. So as long as as long as you don't mind waiting five years and building that up over time, 
You're fine. You can get there. You can, you can get there. A lot of people have problems with patience. No, but I want a big $100,000 now. It's like, well, your risk of ruin is going to way up. You're going to play above your means. You play 15% of your bankroll a night in GPP. Just to me, that's a disaster waiting to happen. Dave Spag says, I usually go through each team and eliminate players who score less than 15 to 18 points. Is that bad? Not necessarily. A lot of times you don't even get players like that in your, in, in, when you build lineups anyway. If there are players that you just do not want to play for whatever reason and they project not good and you want to X them out, then X them out. That's fine. Right, Jamie says fantastic advice. You have to survive long enough to realize your EV. That's a, that is the key if you're playing well. It's not that difficult to play well. It really isn't. As long as you understand like, like the fundamental concepts of the game that you're playing, that we're playing DFS-wise, is to build lineups that have a higher probability of high equity spots than the field. That's it. Plus EV, positive expected value line. From there, it's just a matter of surviving long enough to realize it, right? Like having a 500-sided die, right? You have a 1,000-sided a thousand die. It's a 1,000-sided die. And I'm going to pay you 5,000 to 1 to guess the right number. That's plus EV to the extreme. 5,000 to 1. That means, you know, for every 1,000... On average, every thousand rolls, you bet a dollar. 999 times you lose the dollar. And one time you win 5,000. You should only be winning a thousand. But now I'm going to give you 5,000 to win. Well, you're going to lose. You're going to lose like 90. You're going to lose 99.9% of the time. But when you win, you win five times as much as you should. So as long as you could survive for the times that you win, you're, gonna, you're just gonna, you're gonna make money for the rest of your life if you're able to do that every day, every hour. Make those types of bets. But let's say it's a thousand-sided die, just like the example is. It's a dollar to place the wager, and it's and I'm paying you five thousand to one when you when you guess correctly, right? Four hundred thirty-two, you know, and it rolls nine hundred and ten, and you're you lose the dollar. If you, if you had a bankroll of $10, right, of only $10, so you can only make 10 bets, the likelihood of you going broke is very, very high. Even though it's a plus, even though it's plus EV, right? You only have 10 bets worth of stuff. I, hopefully, hopefully you realize it in 10 bets. Very unlikely that you do. If you have a bankroll of $500, your risk of ruin is still pretty high. You may not get there. A dollar a bet, a dollar a bet, a dollar a bet. If you have a bankroll of $10,000, most likely you're not going to go broke. Over the course of 10,000 bets, yeah, there is, there is a period in, in the span of infinity, in infinity, 
that you lose 10,000 times in a row. You're expected to lose like 999 times in a row, possibly, on average. But you could go like 1,700 bets without winning. 2,400 bets without winning. That would be within probably within one standard deviation. But if you have, if you, if the risk versus bankroll percentage, which is essentially what the Kelly criterion is, doesn't matter how plus EV the bet is. If you can't realize it, what does it matter? So your goal is to, your goal is to survive long enough to realize your EV. That's why, that's why do you think contest selection and bankroll management, if you're already playing well, is like probably more important than anything else. So when people say they're paying 10, 15% of their bankroll in GPP, I think that's nuts. You're playing with fire. So having, having, so when people say, ah, having a large bankroll is an advantage. No, it's not an advantage. It's a byproduct of one, playing well, and two, having the cushion to be able to realize your EV. So when I say that I play less than 1% of my bankroll on a lot of slates, that's the reason. I know, I know, I know how hard it is to realize your EV. That you can play well and lose 99%, 92% of the time. And I'm conservative like that when it comes to the bankroll management. Some people are much more risky. Their risk of ruin goes way up. It's not the risk of ruin is not 100%. And you better hope that you could survive. And what happens a lot of times is that the people that we see are the survivors of that. Okay, that's survivorship bias. So you may take a look at some of the, you know, the top, you know, Roto-Grinders ranked players that play 150 max. They're playing four different sites. They're playing all whatever like that. And they're playing five, 10% of their bankroll or something like that. And you're like, oh, well, there's these like 40, 50 players that, you know, they seem to they seem to have no problem playing whatever percent. And they, they you look at me and I'm the nit. One percent of your bankroll, what are you a nit? But those four, those 40 that you see that are still around that in 2022 that are playing like that, like, and they're playing well. It says nothing. They're 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 the best DFS players in the world. The best DFS players in the world still have to survive long enough to realize their EV. So there's 40 of them or whatever, whatever number now. You're only seeing the 40 that survived. How about the 200 others that didn't make it? How about the 500 others that didn't make it? There, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are probably people that are the greatest DFS players ever that right now would be ranked top 10 in the Roto Grinders that went broke in 2017. That played that played well above their means, played 20%, 50, 50, 10 to 20% of their bankroll. And they're playing high plus EV lineups. They binked maybe one or two times. They have a 200,000, 300,000 bankroll. And now they're playing 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 a slate. And they go on a they go on a downswing, variance, and they don't drop down. They go, well, I'm just going to try to double down to make that back. And then the next thing you know, they're broke. Yet if they played 
three to five percent of their bankroll rather than 15 plus percent of their bankroll, they'd probably they'd probably be here in 2022. You know, with a five to eight million dollar bankroll or whatever. But they but they didn't. They upped their risk way too much and they went broke and then decided to do something else and not DFS. What we're seeing right now are the survivors of some of that. Obviously, we're also seeing people that do manage their bankrolls well, that don't play you know, very high percentages of it. But we also see that as well. There, there are plenty, there are plenty, there are plenty of people that I remember. 2017, 2018, right? Because you have to remember in 2015 and 16, I was primarily just playing soccer. So I knew the soccer people, but not like the, the overall DFS, you know, NBA, MLB, NFL, that type of stuff. But there are names from 2017, 2018 that, where are they? They seem to be, they seem to be winning 2017, 2018. And then you, you don't, it's 2020. And like, whatever happened to that person? What happened to happen to that username? And you go to like the Roto Grinders rankings, you take a look and they're like, I haven't played in three years. It's like, what happened to them? It's like, oh, when was their last big win? X date. And, and then it's like all their entries for six months and then nothing. So, like, yeah, because they were probably playing above their heads. They were probably very good players. They were probably better players than me. But they said, oh, I'm going to ta- I'm going to take the, the $700,000 that I won this season. And now I'm playing, you know, Thunderdomes and 20K head-to-heads and, and playing high stakes, everything, and 115 on all the sites. And, and they go through a downswing, and the downswing eats up 80% of their bankroll. Uh, let's see. See, Daniel Hutchins is even doing the math in the chat. Odds of losing a thousand times in a row on a thousand sided die are about 37%. 2,000 in a row is 13.5%, and 4,000 in a row is 1.8% off the top. People are doing, doing the math. What bankroll do you need to have for that fictional name? And James Harden is out. So Harden's out. Is, 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 isn't Kyrie and Durant out also? Well, it says hamstring ruled out on Tuesday. He may, maybe he's tra- maybe he's being traded. We don't know. It's going to be nuts. It's a 10-game slate tonight. It's 20, 20 teams. Today's going to be nuts. And then tomorrow's going to be nuts with the trade deadline. So, like, this is like the ultra. Why are we even bothering going over the slate at 11 a.m., right? The, uh, typically, we don't. Because three things happen that change everything. Now, uh, who, who knows? Daniel Hutchings asks, thoughts on forcing in more players from late games in case there's late news to take advantage of? Or if you have many lineups, just count on the fact that some will already have a bunch of late players. Uh, I judge that personally based on what expectations of value. Obviously, sometimes there are late games where someone sits and no one had a clue, right? It's just something that happens, right? Jokic sits. No, no one had a clue that that was going to happen. But a lot of times, it, a lot of times you already did, right? We always have De'Aaron Fox, right? He's questionable eight million days in a row, right? That type of stuff. We have Q guys. So if 
if in the late games there are there are players where it's like if this guy is out, then this guy becomes like a player that you if it was pre-lock, you would jam into like almost all your lineups. Those are the situations where I start prioritizing later games. That you know, like like the the so if I had a choice between having more exposure to a a, a seventy eight hundred dollar guard from a seven p.m. game or similarly projected, but maybe they're off by two points, right? Two points lower projected guy from a ten o'clock game. I probably side with more exposure to the to later game to have more spots to swap out of in case that big value type of situation happens. But that's that's how that's how I personally adjust to that. If in the later games, it's like, well, if this guy's out, then this guy gets a little bit of a bump, but still like you can play him. Right? I mean, like it's nothing to send, send home about. They're going to be under owned, like from a relative value standpoint. Yeah, they're good. A guy that, that is currently 4% owned that should be now because of that guy being out should be 16% owned. That's a good situation to be in, but probably not something where I would completely, you know, uh, plan out my entire like set of lineups around. No, it's the type of player that that is four percent owned. But when this guy and this guy are out, should be eighty eight percent owned. Those are the situations. Like I want to take advantage of that. Right, he's currently four percent. Should be eighty eight percent, and based on late swap, ends up coming in twenty three percent. A twenty three percent owned player that should be eighty eight percent owned. Like that. Then I start. Then I start prioritizing. But like I said, sometimes stuff happens late that we can't even expect. But I don't think that type of stuff happens enough for me to worry about. It's more of the, let me take a look at the Q tags. Let me take a look at the back-to-backs, right? Who could be sitting? A lot of times you get that information before locking anybody. Kickstart says bankroll management has to be what I adjust to do better this year. Like I won 10K twice last year, but still blew through it trying to chase the 100K. Playing a lot of satellites a year to get the $15. Yep. Right. You go, oh, I, well, I won 10K. That means I could step up and I could play $1,000 a slate. Have patience. Patience. What's so, so hard about having patience? $10,000 is not that much money. Right. And the more and more you build up your bankroll, the harder and harder it is to replenish that through another means. So the more and more you make, the more the bigger your bankroll gets, the more conservative you should really be. People do the opposite. I do. I do. I do conservative. I go, oh, I have a 200,000, 300,000 bankroll. What happens if I lost 80 percent of it? How do I replenish that? I, I don't have any other. I don't, I don't have some fancy job or anything. I'm not going to, you know, a fancy car to sell or something. I, I don't got any of that, right? So I'm going to protect it. Not by like, oh, now I'm going to play the mini match. Like, no, you, you're just not not playing not play, playing 10% of your bankroll. $30,000 a slate. Like, I, I, I'm not going to take on that much risk. Diego's asking if I'm playing the three-game EPL slate today. Probably not. I could, maybe. It depends on what to me. I haven't even looked at it. So it depends. 
Right. But the lineups come out of 145, maybe. But I haven't looked. I, there's nothing I can even talk about. I don't even know who's playing on it. If it was a bigger slate, I would have prioritized. Isn't the Wednesday? Tomorrow's slate is bigger, right? Tomorrow's slate is like five or six games. I think I'll play that. Three game slate, maybe not so much. Daniel Hutchings says, I'm typically rolling around 1% of my bankroll on any given GPP slate. If I think my edge is really big, like NFL Showdown, I may take it to gas 2%. Yeah. Yeah, nerdy, nerdy tenor is, 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 is part of the part of the knit crew, right? The knit crew. Are we the knits? <laughs> we don't play like knit. Like there's a difference. Like people, people confuse nittiness or conservativeness to the types of lineups and not. Just the bankroll management. Like I'm not a nit. I'll play nutso lineups. I'm like I play MMA. I'm playing unique lineups. NFL showdown. Play nutso lineups, right? Playing optimally, but bankroll wise, I'm not. I'm not going to be playing six thousand dollars of lineups on a on a on a an NFL showdown slate. I'm not going to play more than one one two. Like like, like he's he's. Daniel's in the same range that I am. One, two percent, yeah, something like that around there. Alex Santi's in here. He says, I play nine to one cash to GPP in the realm of two to three percent of my role. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like me. I don't know if that's right, but I've taken huge swings with ease doing taking huge swings with ease doing it. Daniel Hudgens says uh, the same paradox in investing. The people most able to take risk, rich people, are the ones who least need to. That's correct. I think it's fine in DFS if you have a very, if you have a small replenishable bankroll. See, this is where the vice versa advice comes in. Because I get I get people emailing me or DMing me or whatever saying that I they have a $500 bankroll and they're trying to play like the 80-20 old school, 80% cash, 20% GPP, no more than 5% of your bankroll type of thing. And I tell them, don't even bother. Play, play risky. Because it's like $500 isn't a bankroll. It's like, like, what do you do for a living? If you lost this $500 this week, would you put another $500 in? Their answer is almost always yes. So I said, so, so you have a $1,000 bankroll. <laughs> so you don't have a $500 bankroll. So when you, when you have low amounts of money where you can replay that, that this is at the hobby level, I think you can take up, take more risk. It's not really a bankroll. You can, if you lost $500 in a month, you can replenish that. And if you're not in a position where you can replenish $500, you probably shouldn't be playing with the initial $500 to play DFS in the first place, right? It's like, well, if I lose this $500, I'm never playing DFS again. Because I need to pay my bills or what like then then you shouldn't be playing the in the first place. So that's why I don't consider five hundred dollars to be a real bankroll. And if you're like, I'm gonna deposit five hundred dollars and and play to learn or whatever, don't play 80-20 with cash games or anything. Play fifty play 50, 50 bucks a slate, hundred bucks a slate. Play the one dollar twenty, play, play the the, the one dollar twenty max. Play the quarter arcade, play, I mean, whatever. And whatever it is, it is. It's yes, it could be 10% of 
at that point. But it's like, let's say you get a $500 ring. I mean, this is you're describing me. I started with $400, okay? $400 and in October of 2015, at the end of December, I had a good hit in a GPP. My bankroll was then $2,400, right? But then I was still playing like 10% of my bank. Like I was still playing. Now I can play $200 a slate, right? And then the course of January, February, and March, once I get back to March, I was back down to like six to 800 bucks, right? Instead of just playing, you know, a smaller portion. It's like, oh, I moved up and I won this thing. I could stay up there. No, you can't. I wasn't, I wasn't good enough. I was only playing for three months. Still learning how to play. So I went down to six to $800 and then, okay, I'm playing $60 a slate. Knowing that I can replenish the six to $800. So it's not a real bankroll. And I'm playing 10 lineups into the large field contest. I'm playing five lineups. I'm hand building everything. And then you move up and you go, oh, here, a $2,000 hit. Okay, but I'm not, now I'm playing $100, $200 a slate because with a $2,500 quote bankroll, I mean, I had, a, I had a regular job. So like if I lost the 2,500 bucks, I could still put another 500 to $1,000. So I could play. I played more risky, right? I was playing GPPs. I was playing 10% of whatever was in there. I was still fine. Then by September, by, September, by October, the fall, October, 2016, I, my bankroll was $12,000. Okay, that's good. And then, and then you move up and then six months from there, my bankroll's $35,000. Now at that point, it's like, well, what if I lost $35,000? Well, I'm not going to be able to replenish all $35,000 if I just lost that all today. Right? So at that point, now I'm lowering my percentage of how much I play because I'm now I'm trying to protect my investment a little bit more. Then once you get past there, the year later, now, now my bankroll's $150,000. You're playing even less of your percentage of a bankroll. Raw money-wise, still a good amount of raw money. 1% of $150,000 is still $1,500. You're still playing decent enough volume. <sighs> Alex Opti says, I burned through a 5K score in my second year. Fourth time I've gone broken gambling. I vowed never again, right? I did the same thing in poker. I'm not go broke or anything. I'm just saying I was I was I was nitty. Not nitty in how I played, but nitty in bankroll management. Typically I played stakes that were lower than what you would expect for a bankroll size that I had. But they were easy games and my you always have to go by what your goal is. Your goal is to get rich, but probably don't listen to me. <laughs> if your goal is to get rich quick, I ain't your guy. I'm the Joey Kanish. I'm a Joey Kanish in DFS. I've always stated my goal is to average fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars a year playing DFS. That's it. I'm going to maximize my everything that I do to play to make fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars a year because that that would be a a web development or you know web marketing some type of office digital marketing job or something that I. That I, that I did before I played DFS. 
or while I played DFS. So it's like, can I replace the job that I don't want to do anymore with a job that I do want to do? I don't need to make more. I just need to make the same. And that's, and that, and that's what I've done. So I'm looking to protect that. Can I make fifty dollars to $75,000 on average per year? I don't mind making $150,000 one year and the next year making zero. So it averages out to the same because I'm not like, oh, well, I made an extra $75,000. I'm going to go out and buy a fucking fancy car or some shit. I'm not, I, don't, I don't do that. I'm saving the money anyway. So you have to define what your goals are. Some people's goals are, I want to make a millions of dollars. Okay, and then you're, you're going to have to weigh up your risk. You have to realize that 95% of the time you go broke doing that. And that's fine for the 5% of time that you do have a million dollars. Okay, you, that's perfectly fine. I mean, my risk of ruin is very low. I do more to to to, to eliminate downside than to to maximize my upside. I'm aware of that. Some people make fun of me because of it. Because it's quite it's quite probable that if I played more aggressively over the course of the past six and a half years, that my bankroll would be ten times the size. It's quite possible that I have I'd have a three million dollar bankroll. I would have won the million major, a contest that I barely ever play. It's quite possible. But if I take a look at the past six years and go, well, I've made fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars on average for six years. And this is what I do for a living, right? Play DFS and talk to you schmucks. I ain't training that. That's fine. Fine with me. Absolutely fine with me. So that's that. That's that's my perspective. <sighs> Daniel says many don't appreciate that if you're planning to make most of all of your money, your bankroll requirements go up significantly as you need to take money out to pay the bills. Well, fortunately for me, that's why I do a lot of this other stuff. That's not play. My, my bills, the, the bare basics of my bills are, are paid for essentially through content work, right? So a little less stress. At the end of the day, what I get from Roto-Grinders, what I get from other sites, because I do podcasts, I do other stuff, right? The course, right? You could always get the Theory of DFS, right? Theoryofdfs.com, how to think like a professional DFS player. Like this is this is what like pays pays the bills. So no matter no, no matter what, I mean, I could always take money out of my bankroll. Yes, obviously. It's kind of like, oh, well, I had a, a downswing this month, which like, it's not like my bills can't be paid or anything like that. Multiple revenue streams, because I know how I know how hard DFS is. It's not something you could like rely on as on a paycheck every two weeks. And that's why I do other things, other revenue streams. Okay, so we talked about some stuff. We got some trade rumors coming on, right? You have to pay it to pay attention. Pay attention this afternoon. We're gonna have you know, value could open up everywhere as teams trade away players, and then teams are gonna be running seven, eight man rotations, and people are gonna be out. You never know what's gonna happen, but you could keep apprised on that. By tuning into Grinders Live later today, five o'clock Eastern for Grinders Live, six twenty p.m. is crunch time for premium members. 
If you want to talk more about uh, any of these types of subjects, you could always join the Roto-Grinders Premium Discord, Blender's Game Theory Channel. Our next, uh, our next Zoom coaching call is on the 18th, like in the middle of All-Star break. We can do two of them. So join me there, and uh, we'll go over this, uh, what could end up being a nutso 10-game uh, slate tonight on tomorrow's show. As I answer your strategy questions, as always, on the DFS pregame show, on rotogrinders.com. 